Welcome to Illuminating Diversity, a podcast for women of color by women of color. Illuminating Diversity is dedicated to empowering women of color in every episode and diversifying the media with their voices. To learn more about our podcast, visit us on Instagram at Illuminating Diversity. And check out our parent organizations at Illuminating Voices and at Fight for Diversity on Instagram. Thanks for tuning in. We're so glad you're here. If you're new here, I'm your co-host, Nandana, and I'm also the founder of Illuminating Voices, a youth organization on Instagram that focuses on sharing the lives of underrepresented women of color from around the world, as well as highlighting various global issues regarding women of color today. And I'm your other co-host, Kayla, the co-founder of Fight for Diversity, a minority-led youth organization dedicated to amplifying the media with the voices of Asian Americans and our culture. In this episode, we're going to interview Kelly Yu, a filmmaker at USC School of Cinematic Arts and the director of Plumtown, a Chinese-American short film. That's right. We're going to discuss her journey as a woman of color in the film industry, her thoughts on representation, diversity, and inclusivity, as well as her creative thought process behind Plumtown, the short film. Hello, Kelly. It's so great getting to sit down with you and talk with you today. Kayla and I are beyond excited to have you in our virtual studio. Hi guys, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're so glad you're here. So Kelly, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm Kelly. I'm a 19-year-old writer-director, originally from New Orleans, Louisiana. But now I'm based in LA. I'm studying film at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. Um, I am now, I guess we've wrapped up our fundraising campaign, which is exciting, but now I'm in pre-production on a short film called Plumtown. Congratulations on getting fully funded on Kickstarter, Kelly. I know that funding can be very stressful and I can't wait to see what you and the Plumtown team will use with the funds in the future. Thank you so much. It's been a really tiring but rewarding process. It's been great, you know, Mm -hmm. building a community and and seeing all the support that's poured in over the past three weeks. It's, It's been really great. Absolutely. And I've been following the Plumtown journey on Instagram, like the good fan that I am. Oh my god. <laughs> the support you guys have been getting is so great. And it, honestly, as the director of this film, it must feel like really, really good to get that support as well. Kelly, what made you want to pursue film as a career? Yeah, this is kind of a, a long story, but I'll keep it brief. My parents are scientists and accountants. Uh, My dad's a geologist who literally studies rocks um, and my mom is an accountant. Um, And so growing up, I just, I was never good at math. I was never good at science. And I clashed a lot with my parents um, because I think they still have that kind of mindset where if you don't pursue a career in that kind of industry, then you're not going to be able to make money or make a living or be successful. Um, So I think growing up, I was kind of, I had that rebellious mindset where I was like, you know what? Like, I'm going to do as much like creative stuff as I can and I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove to you that like it's something that I can do with my life. So like in the beginning, like as a kid, I, I fell in love with music. I 
played violin, piano, guitar for like 13 years. I always loved to write. I loved photography. I loved entrepreneurship. And then like in high school, I, I realized film was like the combination of everything that I loved. Because um, I never, I could never fully pick one or the other. And my high school offered like a four-year concentration in an art form. So I chose media arts, which was photography and film. Um, and that's when I just realized I loved working with people. I, I loved telling stories visually. And yeah, and then ended up at USC and, and you know, am now making movies with my friends. Yeah, that's so, so, so cool. And I think it's really interesting how you decided to go in this like arts and like creative path instead of, I guess you could say what like the stereotypical Asian kid would go through, like being yeah. in an Asian household, you're kind of like definitely pressured, at least in some households, to go in that like STEM route. But I like yeah. how you decided to take a stand and kind of do what your heart desired. Yeah, I mean, one, like, I didn't really have a choice because even if I went to, like, med school or did that, like, I would have been so bad at it. So I kind of, like, film was the only thing I could do. And my parents, like, we did clash a little growing up, but they're they're so supportive. They're very much the kind of people where, like, if you show me that this is something you're passionate about, if you show me this is something you've worked hard to do, then we will support you fully. So very luckily, like, I was able to prove to them um, this is what I wanted to do. And they're they're so supportive. I'm really glad that your parents are really supportive um, on film as a career and it's very unique that you both are making movies and studying film at the same time. I think that's very interesting. Kelly, in your opinion, what would you say is your biggest filmmaking related achievement to date? Oh my gosh, I feel like there's, it's like not tangible uh, accomplishments because I feel like I, there's so much I still have to like learn and do. But so last summer, two summers ago, I, I wrote the feature film version of Plum Town and it was such a niche and specific story. I was like, I'm just gonna write this for me and no one's really gonna be interested in reading a story about like feuding Chinese farmers in the countryside. And I ended up like under the encouragement of my writing mentor, submitting it to a site called The Blacklist, which I don't know if you guys are familiar, but it's kind of like the industry, like the Hollywood database where you upload a script and then they have readers that will assign a score from one to 10. So I've always been like a long time lurker on the site. And I just always heard like their scores are brutal. Like if you get an eight, that is like the highest that anyone, like it's very hard to get an eight. So I was really scared to get my score back and I ended up getting a nine on it, uh, which I like passed out that night because <laughs> I didn't think it was real. So getting the nine on the blacklist was kind of the first recognition I got from someone who wasn't my family, who weren't my friends and, and propelled me to kind of be like, maybe this is something I should develop. Uh, maybe I should make a short film version of it so I can eventually make the feature version of it. Um, so it was that, and yeah, I, I feel like I, I needed that motivation to to really believe in this story and this project. Getting a nine on the blacklist, like I thought you were talking about the TV show. But <laughs> I was like a little bit confused. I was like, yeah. okay. But like, now that I'm thinking about it, like a grading scale and you're 19 and like, it's already hard to get an eight. But then you were like, no, I'm going to get a nine. <laughs> That's crazy. Wow. Thank you. Well, okay, definitely... I did get grounded later, um, like humbled, because then like more scores came in. And I think it is like a public database. So anyone can come in and like score, give you a score. So I got like three zeros in a row, which might have been trolls. So like it brought my average down. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I got a nine and three zeros, which is funny. But yeah, it, it was a, a very humbling experience.
Absolutely. They're probably just trolls. It's fine. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, and I have to agree with Kayla. That's definitely a huge achievement, and you should definitely be proud of that. Thank and you. I know this is a pretty subjective question, but what do you think makes a good film? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, I could go as broad or specific. I'll go a little broad. Um, I think films that just make you think and ask a larger question. Films that kind of open up a conversation. So, I mean, like one of my favorite films is Arrival. It's also one of my favorite genres, grounded sci-fi. I call it grounded sci-fi. It's like science fiction that's rooted in humanity. So ne not necessarily about like aliens or spaceships and tech, more about like how humans connect with each other. Just on like, a, you add like a, another sci-fi element on top of that. And like Arrival is just a film that really makes you question connectivity and how, have you guys seen it? I'm embarrassed, but I haven't seen the full movie, but I've been seeing like clips of it Yeah. that are on like YouTube. And I think it's, who's in it again? I forgot. Amy Adams. Yeah. And Jeremy Renner before he, he did Hawkeye yeah. in, in Marvel. It's so good. I can watch it back to back to back and still have the same emotional reaction at the end. And it leaves you with just this feeling of like, you know, as humans, like there's so many things that disconnect us and, and it's really just about conversation and it's the common language we have is like our humanity. So I think films like that, like really make you think and ponder and, and eventually just feel like feel the extent of the human condition, I think is, is in my opinion, the best kind of film. Yeah, I agree with you. And I honestly feel like the approach that Arrival took and like showing that theme of connection was really, really interesting. And I definitely agree with you on that. Yeah, you guys should watch the full thing. Now I'm gonna watch it, I promise. I'm definitely <laughs> gonna watch it now. Um, I've always been a very big fan of horror, but also rom-coms. I'm, <laughs> I'm into rom-coms as well. And I, I think that, that, you know, when they have a theme of connectivity, it's usually in like those like rom-com like oh or those like soap opera movies but like putting it yeah. into a sci-fi approach is very interesting to see you know yeah that's my so favorite. i'm very excited to see something like that yeah yeah you take something like that's normally been done or is like a very common theme and you put like a different twist on it but yeah i love me a good rom-com too it's like a if you are in like a mood to cry and to contemplate like human existence then watch arrival but it's definitely not like a friday night movie or like popcorn like i'm gonna <laughs> rewind and like have myself a good time type of movie you'll just be an existential dread for like the entire weekend yes but then there's yeah. like hope there's like a, a brighter note at the end yeah definitely so kelly what would you say is the biggest hurdle you face working in the film industry as a woman of color. Are you still overcoming it? And if you've already overcome it, how did you do it? Yeah, I, I thought about this, this question because I've been asked this a lot and I, I had my go-to answer, which is it's constantly proving yourself. It's constantly feeling like you have to be twice as good, twice as fast, twice as creative as men, um, which is true. I think in any industry or whatever you do as woman or a woman of color, this is what you have to prove. But I have two more personal uh, anecdotes. One that I faced freshman year of high school that I that I still am kind of facing. Where you go into high school, you go into, you're trying to get into this new, break into this industry and you're so bright eyed and so, just eager to have validation. 
And I experienced this instance where there were seniors at USC or like older people who started giving me a lot of opportunities and it, taking me on sets, inviting me to work on projects, reaching out. And I very naively thought, oh my gosh, they like, like my work. They think I'm talented. They don't care that I'm a freshman. Like they want to work with me. And I was talking to my roommate and I was like, why me? Like, why did, why are they inviting me to work on this project? And we kind of dismissed it as like, oh, they probably saw your website. Like it's not linked anywhere, but they probably like Googled you and we're like, oh, we love her work. And it wasn't until like months later where I realized like they had never seen my work. Like they didn't care. It was something, it was a completely different reason, um, if you know what I mean. It sucks because then like they could be really talented and it could be really great opportunities, but now like I feel like I can't take them because if it's for the wrong reason, then like that's not something I want to do. And I, I continuously try to like, it, it's, it's bad because you don't want to always be suspicious of someone's intention because there are wonderful people out there that just want to help you and mentor you. But as women, and especially women of color, or not necessarily women of color, but more as women, you know, young women who are trying to break into any field, there are going to be people out there with bad intentions and it's disguised as, you know, we're giving you opportunity, we're giving you help. Because film especially is all about opportunity, it's all about who you know. So it, it's kind of like a half sacrifice, half kind of gauge that you just have to always have in the back of your head. And the second is my roommate and I were actually talking about this. It, it's one of my biggest insecurities kind of, I guess, in high school. Like, I'm doing what you guys remind me a lot of what I was like in high school. You know, you, you work on a lot of projects outside of school and it's amazing. You're being entrepreneurial. So I freelanced all throughout high school. I started my own business. I did photography, I did videography. So in a sense, like I had clients, quote unquote. And I always felt this need to present myself in the most professional way possible so people wouldn't look down at me and people would actually you know take me seriously and now in college one of my insecurities is I am scared I come off as cold or um, too professional to people who I'm not trying to impress and I was kind of just like confiding this in my roommate and she said something that made a lot of sense she said it's not that you're cold it's not that you're aloof it's not that you're too professional it's that because you are a woman no matter how mature or how professional you come off with, you will always seem as cold, even if, you know, a man kind of carries himself in the same way, if that makes sense. Like if I'm in like a professional setting or at like a networking thing and me and a man are carrying ourselves in the same way, either being professional or being, you know, trying to act mature, the woman gets seen as being bitchy and the man gets seen as professional. Um, and that is something as, women as women of color is something we're gonna have to continuously be battling against but i think it's like we we do what we can we um just have to be better um and we have to speak out which i think is why like podcasts or organizations like you guys or what you guys are doing illuminating diversity is so powerful because we need voices uh, we need new voices. We need voices that'll change the narrative. We just need more and we need more platforms to, to amplify these voices. And you guys are doing a really great thing. Thank you so much. And 
that's a lot like I'm not trying to funny but like that was a lot to think about wow and I think you know when you get a lot of opportunities because like I know that like in stuff that isn't quote-unquote traditional like in things like trying to like get big in the film industry it's all about connections who you know who you mm-hmm. don't and some people like they have they're just privileged and they have a lot of connections but it really sucks that like as a woman you're gonna have to be like oh is this person really trying to help me or do they want something other than what my professional yeah. skills are like that's something that yeah. we're always gonna have to fear like what do you want from me like we're not trying to be hostile yeah. but it's for our safety and for exactly yeah, so we're not trying to come and your self-worth yeah like i'm not no one is going to do like that just to like get into the industry some people do and it's really sad because that's not all they have to offer they have yeah. other things exactly. you know they come into the industry not to serve what men want. They want to do it yeah. to, you know, exactly. foster creativity. So that's very interesting. And I know that a lot of women come off as aloof, you know, cold. Yeah. But, you know, that's just because, like, you can't be naive in the real world. And, like, that's kind of something that you're going to have to go through. And even no matter how nice you are, people are going to, like, think about that. But it's just a matter of, like, as long as you know who you are, then it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and then the people around you who actually know you yeah. know. And I, I, that is what is most important. But yeah, it's real. It's a real thing. Yeah. I Throughout the fundraising process, some people reached out that wanted to donate like $3,000. And I was like, that's amazing. Here's the Kickstarter. You know, so your financials are secured, are, were secured. And he like led me on like, it was a whole like week long process of like him being like, I don't know how to use Kickstarter. I had to call him to walk him through it. And eventually like, I suspected, but eventually he was like, I think we just need to meet up so I can give you a check. And I was like, nope, okay. <laughs> don't need $3,000. No way. That's yeah, nasty. No way. I'm not meeting up with you and I don't want your check. And he's like, and then it got like more creepy because he's like, but sweetheart, this is the business. This is the game. Oh my God. You have to, like, like, this is what you have to do. I, that's literally so scary. And you moved from Louisiana. That's where you lived, right? Yeah. Well, I'm from Louisiana, but I'm now here for school. Yeah. So moving from Louisiana to California, like you're so brand new right you're so vulnerable to all these things like at times would you say that you've like ever felt like lonely like after being like exposed to all this i don't necessarily feel lonely i feel more like for lack of a better word and i'll explain this i felt dirty and i say that because i never felt lonely because i have the best support system my roommates are my best friends um and my mentors and the people in my life never i've never felt lonely I feel dirty only like in this process. I wouldn't say more like moving to California because that's been a great experience. And like you're in a college bubble, so you always feel safe. I think more like recently, the past month, with a Kickstarter, the work that you have to, like you don't, you can't just sit around and wait for the money to come in. It's what people don't really realize behind the scenes. It's minute by minute, hour by hour, constant, consistent reaching out to people. And with Kickstarter, you're getting donations, but you also have to offer something in return. And for like the people in my community who are, you know, we're offering like t-shirts and stickers and like that is like so fun. And I'm like, here, I'll like have all the merch. But then you, you get to like the 1000 or like $3,000 level. And so the people that you reach out to are people you don't know. And there was a period where I found a strategy that I was thought was really funny and I was joking around with. Um, and that's LinkedIn as like 
a place people don't tell you uh, to go to find like people to give you money. But you know how on LinkedIn you can filter searches by keywords? Yeah. So yeah. I realized that if you search like executive producer, entrepreneur, or dentist, dentists really like to give money to films. <laughs> you can filter out people who like aren't really executive producers. They're people who just donate to film Kickstarters and then they take the credit. It's like, like people who have a lot of money and are fascinated with the film industry, but don't have any like legit ways to get in. So they just like donate to films and they take the credit in return. And like, in my perspective, like I was like, we need money. Like anyone who gives $3,000, fine like you can get an executive producer credit so I reached out to a lot of people and sometimes it worked but a lot of these people are just creepy they're strange and they're creepy and they're sleazy and it just in the process it was funny it was like we got money but after like the dust settles down and you kind of think about it like it wasn't anything like physical like it was never anything tangibly like bad yeah. or dirty or inappropriate but you just you feel like you're giving pieces away to strangers because plum town is such a personal story so i love giving sharing because we say in our kickstarter if you donate you own a piece of this film i love that people in my community share pieces of it i love it but there's something about giving pieces away of it to strangers and in return like kind of like begging for a larger donation i feel like i need like a deep cleanse um inside yeah that's thank you yeah. for sharing those stories they're very insightful and definitely do speak a lot about definitely a lot of the experiences that women of color are probably going through in this industry and kelly if you could go back and do something differently while entering the film industry what would it be Oh, that's a really good question. I feel like, let me take a minute because I want to I wanna formulate this in the best way. If I could go back, because I, I still don't consider myself in the film industry. I think we're all just, we're trying our best to pave a way into this career. And it's so hard and it's, there's so much more to do and to prove myself before, you know, you can enter the film industry. That's such a broad term. I think I would just try and slow down actually. Cause if I had known the amount of like hustle that I would make myself do, I think back to like, just kind of spending more time as a kid. And I'm like, still like it, like I'm 19, but I feel like in a way, I put this pressure on myself to have to, like I said before, like present myself in a way and do these things. And it's tiring. And it's sometimes I just, I wish I took more time with like my youth in a way and like made mistakes and let myself make mistakes and let myself be stupid and dumb and reckless. Cause I think like that's life. And like you have an eternity to like be in a career, or, like do a job, but we, what you don't get back is like, your childhood and, and the times where like you don't have those pressures and you don't have all these expectations placed on you. I think just like to enjoy like high school or enjoy college and and take time to you know just have fun with with your youth I think before you really dive into any larger career aspirations. Yeah I think it's actually really important that honestly you just take a breather whenever you need it because I know sometimes we like really overwork ourselves and yeah, at the end of the day we really just don't like sit down and like think like what 
I need? Like, what does my body need? Like, what does my mind need? And even me, like, I'm 16, yeah, I find myself, like, overworking myself on, like, the tiniest things. And it's, like, even I need to give myself that reminder, like, hey, it's okay to, like, slow down. Like, there's no need for that pressure. Yeah, and you guys have such a bright future ahead of yourselves. And, like, genuinely, you guys are doing such a great job. Because, like, when someone like me, like, finds the Illuminating Diversity Instagram account, like, we look at them, we're like, this looks like it's, like, got... 20 people behind it is working it's so polished it's so beautiful but then behind it it's like it's young people who are balancing school and life and doing this on their own time and like the work that goes behind it and like as the creators behind it you feel like if i stop then it's gonna all fall apart Um, but that's not the case because on the other end we see such a beautiful thing and so it's so professional it's so polished and it's like no one knows if you give yourself a break and you you know take time to really just just chill it's easy to say you know but you put that pressure on yourself so i i am grateful for the people who have come into my life and been like slow down you know sometimes too much hustle isn't necessarily the best for you um and you literally have like your entire life to work it's true I definitely agree. And someone that has been proudly married to the grind. (laughs) Um, I feel like a lot of people, especially as teenagers, you know, you see all these people being like change makers, which isn't a bad thing. But, you know, especially balancing schoolwork and doing AP everything. Like, you got to take a step back and realize, is this something, you know, even though like you love doing it, like I love doing podcasting, I love script writing. But, you know, you got to take a moment to just relax. And I think that's something that especially you're gonna be married to the grind for like 40 years when you're like isn't that scary yeah yeah and you're starting as a teenager like give yourself a break yeah Yeah. it's like the same thing like people who achieve success too early on in their lives even with like child actors like i i know a lot of them and some of them are like my best friends but like that takes a toll like when you have everything you ever want at such a young age then what is left for you to aspire towards so you know you leave some room and i it's easy for me to say i'm also married to the grind (laughs) but especially in this past month like I think December was a very pivotal month for me where I really... December, we were prepping the Kickstarter. We were trying to figure out Plumtown the short and how we were actually going to do it. So I was navigating all of that and also was placing the pressure on myself that I needed to write a second feature script. And my mental health just like even now like thinking about writing like my anxiety and I never really had anxiety but I could feel something physically like inside me spiking and the pressure came because I said Kelly you have a month of winter break no interrupted classes or other obligations if you don't pump out a second script in this month then you have failed that's what I told myself because it's easy to make excuses throughout the semester where I was like oh I'm not like writing as much as I should because I have classes, I have like other obligations, but then I was like, okay, well you're at home for a month. If you don't write a second script, then you're a failure. And so only now I'm literally trying to like rewire my brain to teach myself that like, it's fine. Like you take it one step at a time and what will happen will happen. There's only so much control you have over your opportunities and the trajectory your life goes. Cause I was always taught like, as a female, 
aspiring director, no one's gonna just hand you a movie and be like, you get to direct this. And this goes to not just film, but anything. Like you have to prove yourself. And I was always taught like, that means writing. Like you write scripts and those are the films you can direct. And so it's great advice and it's true, but it's easy for that to get warped and to kind of take over your mind and be like, oh, if I'm not writing, then I'm never gonna be able to make a movie. But there's only so much you can control. So I'm trying to, you know, let life take you where it wants to take you and, and work on things on your own time when it, when it feels right. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I know that especially like young people, um, as I said earlier, we want to be married to the grind, you know, we're already like kind of thinking of being engaged, but like we're not ready to, yeah. but, wait, but, but we want to fully commit. Yeah. And like, yeah. even as like 19, like you're on the cusp of adulthood, you know, enjoy your life while you can, <laughs> you know, as you know, I'm a teenager, yeah. I'm giving advice to like a 19 year old, but like, it's just really hard because like a lot of people like, especially if you're like very like hardworking when it comes to academics and you're hardworking with all your extracurricular activities, you gotta be able to, you know, take a break. And I think one of the things that young people are trying to finally realize is that rest and like taking a break shouldn't be the end goal. It should yeah. be a necessity, right? You know? Yes. You can't just yeah. be like, after four hours of studying, maybe I'll drink water. And I'm like, no, drink water <laughs> I'll now. I'll reward myself with some water. <laughs> yeah, like, that's kind of freaky. I used to do that. I was so, that was bad. But like, here I am, like, willingly drinking water, like, while I'm working. Yeah. So that's something yeah. that we all have to, like, finally realize. It's a good reminder. I'm drinking yeah. water right now. <laughs> so, um... Kelly, throughout your journey as a student studying filmmaking, what has been your favorite experiences? And what has been the most hardest and challenging? And last question, how have your experiences studying film changed because of COVID-19? Yeah, well, the journey so far has been, it's been a journey. I think the best experiences are literally like the people I've met because in high school like New Orleans is a small city and there weren't that many people doing film and I oftentimes like I did feel alone and the reason why I wanted to go to USC is I wanted to be surrounded by people who did the same thing that I was doing and the way USC film school is structured is your class is only 50 people we call it a cohort and it's intentionally fostered to be like you guys need to be really close and luckily like we all are so that's been the best part and, um, not just my classmates but meeting people outside of school um, my one of my producers um, on Plumtown she actually is a graduate student she's getting her MFA in producing and I would have never met her if I had not come to USC and met a mutual friend who introduced her to me so that's been the best part the hardest part has been navigating, I think, good and bad advice. And I think this pertains to like filmmaking specifically and what I talked about earlier, where you are like such a starry eyed, like you think you're like coming to Hollywood and like you're so like your professors you think are like the most knowledgeable people in the world and they're gonna teach you everything you need to know. And then you realize like eventually the glamour kind of fades away and not everyone knows what they're doing. And I think it's only now I'm learning to discern what is good advice and what is damaging advice. Cause there it's, it's easy for, for professors to really inflict harm on students who, who don't know otherwise. And I don't mean like emotional or physical harm. I mean like 
saying things and teaching you things that aren't necessarily true. So that's been really challenging. It's been challenging, like kind of navigating that and and kind of trying to gauge for myself what is like genuinely good advice and good help and what is, you know, not necessarily like you take it with a grain of salt. And with COVID, I think because all our film classes are online, it's, I'm not gonna lie, like it's sucky. We are all very angry about it because it feels like we've been reduced to just making home movies without any support from our institution. But also on the flip side, we're very lucky that it's given me time to produce Plumtown and we're doing this outside of school. So it's, it's kind of given me time and opportunity to just pursue other things. That's really yeah. interesting because I wanted to really know how has COVID affected you as a film student? Because I know that like when making a film, it's not just the director, you know, there's the producer. Oh, yeah. So I was just wondering like how you guys are like creating films. I'm not, I'm not a film student. I know what's happening. That's very interesting to see your take on it. And I know that, you know, Plumtown isn't even like a school assignment. You're doing this like out of your own accord, which is amazing. Yeah. And so it's very Thank interesting you. to see how, you know, COVID has given a lot of young people a lot of time. So it's good that yeah. you're using it to do some like good in the world. It's great. Oh, thank you. And yeah, I mean, with our film classes, they say like we get split into trios. So it's a director, a cinematographer and producer slash editor. And they expect us to just carry those same roles, but shoot like over Zoom. But then you realize like, there's no really need for like Okay, so it's like, you're the cinematographer, right? But how can you be the cinematographer if I'm only allowed to shoot my own things? Like, I'm the director filming my own family members. And what, like, you're going to sit over Zoom and, like, tell me where to put the camera? But, like, you're not shooting anything. So it kind of makes a lot of, like, positions obsolete. And it's hard. Like, we also have to learn editing on, like, a very complicated editing software. And, like, you can't teach that. Like, they're teaching it over Zoom with, like, screen share. But then like, how can you watch the screen share while also editing on your laptop? So then they're like, well, get a second monitor. But like, why should students have to shell out money for two monitors when, you know? So it's just stuff like that. But yeah, like you're, you're really right in that it's given people a lot of free time to do things and to explore projects that they normally wouldn't have the time to do. So we all feel really lucky and we all are really excited. Yeah, absolutely. And as expected, the experiences of women of color in this industry are widely different from other non-minorities. I'm sure you can agree on that, Kelly. And yeah. I feel like this is reflected in the content produced as well. So in your personal opinion, why does minority representation in the Western film industry matter? Yeah, I, I think that this, this would be like a separate podcast. <laughs> I think to simply put it, Hollywood has just controlled the narrative for too long. To combat the lack of authentic representation, you just have to put more authentic representation in there. And I think it's not that there's not enough. There's so many diverse creators, so many diverse stories out there that are just waiting for the opportunity to be told. And Hollywood gatekeeps they don't give the platform. They don't like taking risks. But with films like Parasite and Minari and The Farewell, it's reassuring in that like, not only is it giving the world more diverse stories and more minority representation, 
in a way, it's proving to these studios, it's proving to Hollywood that people want this. People will pay money to go see these movies. And we need those movies to pave the way so other films can also be given an opportunity to shine. And it's just, you know, we just have to put more out there um, and also challenge um, industry leaders to give creators the opportunity. Because it doesn't help if there are all these stories out there that are just never, they never see the light of day because people don't give the green light. People don't give the money. So I think it's holding people accountable and also starting movements um, that really show that this is something that people want to see, which is really important. Yeah, and I absolutely agree with that. Hollywood has definitely been gatekeeping the narrative and not even just gatekeeping it's like they don't want to cast or like have any poc like so badly that they're hiring white actors to play poc characters and like we can see that in like whenever people like whitewash characters or whenever they have like characters to act like a certain race or like an ethnic Mm -hmm. group and i think it's super super crazy and it's honestly time that we really change that narrative and if Hollywood can't do that then honestly we should start like casting more POC characters if they can't yeah. do that yeah absolutely exactly yeah and even in the like the film industry like we've seen that but I think something interesting that's happening like right now is actually with the Grammys and I don't know if you've heard but the Grammys decided to not show BTS's awards or any of the awards for the R&B and rap category And a lot of people are rightfully angry because that's literally the categories with the most POC. Like BTS, so many people are coming there to watch them. And in the rap and R&B categories, that's where a lot of POC and a lot of black individuals are going to get their spotlight. And they're purposely like taking that away and they're continuing to do this. And it's like people are angry and it's like, what are we supposed to do? That's so frustrating. It's... I didn't know that first of all, but that makes me so angry and I think there should be more like outcry over that on social media. I it reminds me of like Minari. It was an American production yeah. by an Asian American director, literally financed and produced by Plan B Entertainment, Brad Pitt's company, and the Golden Globes nominated it in the international film category. I and heard it's just about that. Ridiculous because they won. But when you see the nominations, it's like this film from this international country, this film from France, Minari, USA. Like it's literally you see USA, but in the international film category. And someone on Twitter said it really well. It's like by doing that, you're diminishing Asian American stories as the outsider. Like you are forever like you're sending the message that as long as it is an Asian American cast, an Asian American story, you guys aren't allowed to classify yourselves as American, no matter how American the film is. It is frustrating. I think, yeah, I've never watched Minari, uh, but um, wasn't it about specifically the American dream? Like, yes, it's about an Asian American family who live in America and they move to like a rural farm in like Arkansas or something or Alabama. And it's about them trying to start a life there as farmers. What? 
Oh my god, that's the Alan Kim guy, the, the little boy. He started crying. He like, oh my god. Oh, Have you guys seen that? Yes. Video? Yes. When he goes, he goes, oh, oh my god. And then he he pinches his cheeks to make himself stop crying, but then he just keeps crying. My roommates and I watch that video like every day. It's he's like eight. Yeah, oh, so so oh my god. But like, I don't understand. It doesn't. It, it doesn't make sense. For, it doesn't make sense. I, yeah, that's crazy. The Golden Globes honestly made me so angry this year. I actually read a post that I think, I think it was Xenerations on Instagram yeah. that, that they made. And there's this TV show, it's called I May Destroy You. It's completely yeah. black-led and it explores so many like really, really good themes. Very, very so good show. So Guess good. what? Completely ignored by the Golden Globes. And then there's Emily in Paris. Like, I, I don't understand. I yeah. Know. You know, if this makes you guys feel any better, do you guys know the people behind the Golden Globes? White people? It's it's the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. So they are a collective of journalists from different countries. And the Golden Globes is their chance to meet and have dinner with celebrities. So they like to nominate. They nominate the shows and the movies and the celebrities that they personally want to meet. So in the industry, the Golden Globes are kind of like, you take it with a grain of salt. There is a thread that was like, people campaign for Golden Globe nominations in that like, I think Netflix sent an assistant to go to send flowers to like a family member. Like it was the, one of the foreign press journalist family members, like distant aunt was in the hospital and like some company sent an assistant to like visit them and give them flowers. So they could get like a vote. So if you think about it that way, like I made a story is like too good for the Golden Globes because they probably refuse to like wine and dine like these obscure journalists and like refuse to chase them for votes. But yeah, that's the people behind it. It's like, you know, I'm gonna give a nomination to Emily in Paris because I want to meet, you know, Lily Collins. Lily Collins. It, you know, people are like, oh, like I don't really care about like the people behind Minari. So, you know, I personally would vote for Minari just so I could meet Alan Kim, but. <laughs> <laughs> As someone that's seen The Farewell and Parasite, both beautiful films, yeah. it's really seen like, you can name like four really popular Asian films, Crazy Rich Asians, The Farewell, Minari, Parasite, mm -hmm. but you can name like a thousand white-led films. Yeah. And just like, even the ones that are like immaculate, like Studio Ghibli, it's a mm -hmm. Japanese film. And yeah. even like stuff that has actually decent representation, like mm -hmm. Avatar The Last Airbender. Yeah. The entire background is white. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, hopefully, you know, unfortunately these films had to have paved the way, but even what I'm learning with Plumtown, like the support has been so incredible because these films have enabled a larger audience and, and people do want to support now. And a lot of people and companies that have approached me are, are ready to see these kind of stories come to life. So we are in a very lucky place right now where fortunately and unfortunately, diversity is trendy. Doing Asian American film is trendy. Hollywood is kind of like packaged it in a way um and it's inauthentic but then there are authentic people out there who genuinely want to elevate asian american representation so it's a good time it's a good time for us
Yeah, I also think diversity starts with the people want to see it. You know, you vote with your dollar, you know. Yeah. The producers are going to follow, yeah. Yeah. I'll never forget, or just, you know, tagging on one mm-hmm. more thing. I saw The Farewell at the Broad Theater, a very small indie theater in New Orleans, Louisiana, which uh-huh. is not like, <laughs> like, it's not Asian American, like diverse. But I was in line to see it behind, I think it was a white woman. And when she said, can I have two tickets for The Farewell? I got teary. Because I didn't think I would ever hear that. You know, at a small indie, like obscure indie theater, you know, I was there with my mom and like other Asian people were there, but walking into the theater and seeing such a diverse audience, like that was more emotional to me than like the film itself. Like the film was emotional, but just watching the people that showed up to see it, there were, you know, people of all color. Yeah, that's very empowering, especially when it's a place like in New Orleans, like a very like small knit, you know, community and seeing that you know it's not just asians that want to watch a film it's everyone yeah Yeah, this is very interesting so kelly as a filmmaker yourself have you ever experienced firsthand a lack of inclusion or performative diversity i'm trying to think of specifics i think instead of like going specific i'll just say like i've been accepted to like things and competitions and been invited to places where was very clearly because I'm Asian, because I'm a female. You can call it performative. I mean, I like go back and forth with this. because It's like, okay, well, if we accuse them of being performative, what do we really want then? You know, like, don't we want a place at the table? Like, does it matter how or the reason behind getting there? And I still don't know. Like, I don't know where exactly I stand on that. I think performative diversity because like what I mentioned like diversity is trendy these days there's a lot of inauthentic attempts at, at being inclusive but I think it's it's more like what we can take and what we do with it you know like let's say I get accepted into like a fellowship or a competition for being the diverse person cool I still got accepted what am I going to do with that well I'm going to be so good that like it doesn't matter the way I got there but I think like that's that's all we can do right now and and seek out the people who are actually you know actually want to uplift you and and your voice that's interesting because i know a lot of people just like add a person of color or a woman of color like oh yeah you know you don't want to be called out for like being like all white you know so like we'll just sprinkle like two or three diverse people and be like you can't call us racist now so like yeah (laughs) so that's interesting because like I know a lot of people like what are you gonna do with it you know you got nominated for like an award or anything be like you're the only POC or a woman of color like what are you gonna do with that mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you're gonna blow them all out of the water like that's what you're gonna do yeah yeah you have to like you just have to be like so good that it doesn't matter how you came in you know you just gotta be that good yeah. I guess yeah like I'm here now y'all let me in like who cares how you know <laughs> can't kick me out you know you already you already let me in yeah exactly mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. You just gotta be the best out of. In your film, Kelly, Plumtown, which takes place in China, you said it's gonna be filmed in California due to COVID-19, which is kind of unfortunate, but um, what is the importance of making sure that the set in California is as accurate as it can be to a real countryside in China? Yeah, so I was bummed that we weren't able to shoot in China because China, like anywhere you go, is authentic. I, I do think I think accurate representation extends so much beyond casting, beyond the people behind the scenes. It's setting, and that's something that gets overlooked a lot in film. 
We, so we hired a production designer who is from China and is actually from like the same hometown my grandpa is. And it's all about paying attention to detail. All we can control is like, we're in California. So we're looking at like an orchard kind of 30 miles away from here in like the Santa Barbara area. So all we can do is like find the closest we can get as like the base. And then it, it's paying attention to detail. So to get around kind of not being able to shoot in like a traditional Chinese villager's house, most of the film takes place inside. So I think my production designer was looking at kind of homes, like existing homes that are empty or with furniture we can take out with kind of just a good blank canvas and either, you know, wallpapering or painting the walls. Very luckily, like Chinese homes have very specific details that like if you can replicate, then like you kind of, you know, it helps a lot. So like the papers are usually kind of like a concrete kind of Mm -hmm. dirt streaked look and then um, there's like specific types of windows and wall decor and you know my production designer because she's Chinese and she has access to like the Chinese like Amazon site she's like you know we'll just like order stuff from China because um, we have the time to ship everything over here and yeah I think it's 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 attention to detail that really sets things apart and, and helps with accurate representation and I have photos of my grandpa's real house that we're using as a reference so yeah it's a challenge but it's it's a process yeah and I think that just honestly really helps make the movie a bit more authentic and a bit more personal yeah in the process I think that's really cool thanks I think diversity and um accurate representation isn't just like we're gonna hire an all POC mm -hmm. cast you know it's oh, all no. about you know like the background like if you're doing something authentic like I don't want to call a certain movie out but I don't know Mulan 2020 <laughs> um, I watched this YouTube video and it was by like a actual like Chinese historian and she was like going off on how like yeah sure it's an all Chinese cast but mm -hmm. the entire background and the entire like set completely inaccurate so yeah. like that's very important and I know you know this is a very personal story to you and you know you want to like make it as authentic as possible so I'm really happy that you know you're taking the extra step you only got one shot you're gonna do it right you know yes hopefully and you know but also we do the best we can there's always gonna be limitations there's financial limitations there's location limitations so you know, I've, I tell like my team this because we've been doing so much press and this is getting so much attention. And I think I come across as like, you know, I, I have a vision for this, but I also don't want people to think like either my way or the highway and also that this has to be perfect. Because believe it or not, I'm actually, I've never considered myself a perfectionist. I believe in doing the best you can, but also allowing yourself to fail. And by fail, I don't mean like fail, but you know, like you, you make mistakes and not everything can be intentional, but sometimes that, that's what makes it so good. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that. You know, it's COVID, you know, you gotta be safe and secure as possible. And especially with not being able to film in China, you have to, you gotta work with what you can. You're gonna try your best, but you know, there's gonna be a mistake. And you know, a film is not gonna be perfect, but that's what makes a film so great, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So Kelly, the Plumtown team is made up of diverse individuals from all sorts of cultural backgrounds. Was that an important factor in recruiting? Yeah, I mean, it was intentional, but only to a certain degree, because I think with films like this, like I, my mindset is not at all like we will only hire Asian people. For me, it, it was more of like, I think an understanding is really important. 
So for example, like my cinematographer, we went back and forth on this a little bit because we were just looking at so many talented cinematographers. Some were Chinese, some weren't. So my decision in eventually picking a Chinese, a native Chinese cinematographer, wasn't because he had to be Chinese. It was because I needed someone who understood the look setting because there are some things I don't know. And so I wanted someone I could rely on to kind of bounce ideas back and forth and, and share mutual understanding. And that was like the best decision I made because my DP, Phillips, he's even like helping us with the Chinese translation. Like that's how good he is. And then like production designer, I felt like was important to also be from China. It's just easier, you know, like they don't have to be, but you save yourself time too by not having to like educate them and like show them all these visual references. But with everyone else, like I think if you understand the story and you enjoy the story, then that is what's most important for me. My co-producers, John is a third generation Chinese American. My other co-producer, Thomas, is Korean American. And my lead producer, Jean, is she grew up in the UK, but was based in Shanghai for a little bit. So I think it was never intentional, like everyone must be diverse. I think it just kind of falls that way because the people that are attracted to this kind of project want to come in bringing their own cultural backgrounds. So it all kind of just like falls together and we're still expanding our team and we're really excited to be doing that. But yeah, it's not just like all going to be Asian people, you know, it's anyone who really feels a connection to the story. Yeah, I definitely agree. And even though Plumtown, you know, it does center on a Chinese, you know, father and son, I believe. Yeah. Um, I think it's yeah. also important to realize, you know, like it's also about connectivity and, you know, urbanization, which is it's not exclusively toward Asians, you know. So, yeah, as long as you have like a mutual understanding and, you know, you really are passionate about a project, you know, go for it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is my hope that it becomes a it's a universal story. I mean, going back to what we've been talking about for the past 20 minutes, it's unfortunately and fortunately, you have to brand a film. Whether it's on Kickstarter or whether it's publicity, you have to brand a film. And I branded this as an Asian American film. And in a way it is because I'm Asian American. So I think by extension, that makes this an Asian American film. But I had some insecurities too, you know? I thought like, oh, but will people think this isn't a true Asian American film because it takes place in China. It's entirely in Mandarin. The characters aren't really Asian American, they're Chinese. But then I realized it's, you're right, like it's it's about generational divide and generational disconnect. It's about younger generations of kids who oftentimes want to become more than their parents and their past and the places they grew up in, but in the process forget that they wouldn't be who they are without those people in those places. And I think that's something that extends beyond a cultural story. So yeah, I mean, I hope it's a universal story and I hope you know, people all resonate with it no matter what cultural background they have. Yeah, I, Plumtown's going to be a really great film and I'm very excited Thank for you. its future. And I honestly feel like everybody could resonate with the movie, even if you're not Asian American. Like, there's definitely that theme of, like, connectivity and family that everybody can honestly relate to. But yeah, now let's pick the brain behind Plumtown, which listeners, if you haven't heard already has recently gotten funded on <laughs> Kickstarter. Congratulations, Kelly. Thank you. Yeah, Thank you so and much. we've been talking about Plumtown for a long time, and I don't think our <laughs> listeners know what Plumtown specifically is. Why don't you tell us what Plumtown is about and how you came up with the concept for this short film? 
Yeah, well, Plum Town is a short film based on the feature film that I wrote, kind of inspired by my grandfather's true story of losing his farmland to a factory. And the larger film, like the, the feature film version of it, has more plot. It's a different plot. Um, it's about like feuding farming dynasties and like an Asian American granddaughter that visits her grandfather and is kind of thrown in the middle of all that. But the short is more loosely thematically connected. It's about a father and a son. The father is a plum farmer who's kind of the last one left in a village where everyone else has either migrated to the city or found employment in a factory. He's just holding on to a single plum orchard. And he has a son who has left home 10 years ago and has now built a life for himself as a real estate developer. And this short is about the son coming home for the first time in decades, trying to convince his father to finally sell the plum orchard to his company so he can build a factory on the land and his dad can retire. And so, yeah, that's the short. It's kind of, you know, what happens when he goes home and how they eventually connect with each other. There is a water gun battle sequence. There is karaoke. We hope that it's also fun, but also, you know, touching in a way that it is for me. When I was writing it, I was, even though it is about a son, I saw myself in that character as someone who is just, has always been so ambitious and so eager to get out of New Orleans or so eager to become more than, you know, what traditionally I was expected to be. But you forget that you are not who you are without the people and the places that you've come from. So that's that's what the short is about. Yeah, I think that's especially important how, you know, when you like come into like the States or the UK and you're like, and like your parents are immigrants, you kind of feel left out to so your like, it's just like this weird like thing where you kind of just want to be everyone else. But you know, you mm -hmm. lose your kind of identity, which sucks and because you know some people even do it willingly they just yeah. refuse to do it and so seeing that impact especially visiting your hometown after so long realizing how the person you are wouldn't be without them you know so that's very interesting yeah. to see i'm very excited to see the film now and you got me at karaoke yeah. definitely yeah i love karaoke and so i i had to write it in there it's the bad um has been singing a he has a little portable karaoke machine he's been using for like the past 20 years and part of the pitch the son is like he, the son knows his dad loves karaoke so he's like if you move to the city like shanghai karaoke bars are like popping and his dad's like i got my own karaoke machine it's perfectly fine and the the film ends with them kind of singing together oh it's yeah. so heartwarming yeah it's so cute <laughs> oh my god Kelly, do you think it was hard translating such a personal experience as like the central plot into a tangible form of media that's going to be viewed by like thousands and thousands of people? Yeah, well, so I talk about this in that like when I wrote the feature, I wrote it expecting no one would ever read it. But then when I wrote the short, I knew that people were going to be reading and watching. And that kind of messed my brain up a little. I, I went through eight drafts of the short wow. and a lot of crying and frustrated yelling and my co-producer John was there the entire process. I think I just, it was hard for me to figure out. I felt like the 15 pages I had to write had to be the most important pages of this story. It's like, how can you encapsulate a whole feature film in a 15 minute short film. And I think I struggled in that I thought it had to be a mini version of the film because I needed the audience to get everything. And it took help from my producers, Gene, Thomas, and John to be like, it doesn't have to be the film. 
you don't have to shove everything you want to shove down your audience's throat in 15 pages. It can be thematically linked. It can be a little like snippet of a bigger thing. So that took a lot of just thinking on and like eight drafts later, finally landed on where the story it is right now. But it was a process. It was a, it was a journey. <laughs> Yeah, that's eight drafts. That's definitely a lot. But I'm sure what we have now for Plumtown is definitely the best version of it. And honestly, I think that comes back to like, you know, pressuring yourself to like put the best thing mm -hmm. out there. But like, it's like at the end of the day, like what you have is honestly probably like the best version of it. And I think we just need to really think about like, hmm, like what's good? Like, what should I like still keep? And I really like how you were able to learn like so much in this process. Yeah of creating yeah, it was it was a really big learning experience i learned more than i have doing online film school <laughs> that's really interesting as well you know when you're trying to like put such a personal story to yourself something that you've experienced firsthand sometimes your story you know it also has to like market audiences so it'll be successful and such so seeing how you know hate is a lot like what nandana said that's a lot people do more though <laughs> i mean like i yeah. write scripts for this podcast and it's usually just like one draft like i'll like bring our podcast researcher to read i'll have nandana read it and then overall it's like good mm -hmm. to go i won't rewrite it yeah it's all good but writing yeah. eight times that's a lot and it really shows the importance of that story to your heart because you're willing to rewrite it over and over and over again yeah. to make sure that it's the best it can be to yourself yeah so kelly you mentioned that the story is the personal experience that you've had with your grandfather but in the film it's about a father and a son why is that change present well i have two answers one of them is not as deep but we had the opportunity to cast a father and a son, like a very prominent father and son actor. So I, I did kind of write it for that opportunity, I will be honest. The second is more, it's it's a closer generational divide. Because I think like a grandfather and like a grandson or a granddaughter, there is generational divide, but it's, it's a little far. So I felt like father and son or like a parent and a kid, it, it's a closer generational divide that like more people can understand. So yeah, that was the reason. And I think, I think it worked out. We've been having fun, you know, casting for a father and a son. Oh, so are the actors like really the, like their father and son? Yeah, I can't oh, say wow. who they are. It didn't okay. work out, but it was a prominent father and son who were both actors and I, I had a connection to them. So I was challenged to rewrite it possibly for them. So I did, but it, it didn't necessarily work out in the way that we expected, but we're pretty happy with the direction we took it. And I think there's something about like the son being like the land developer, like aspiring businessman and kind of seeing that reflected in his father just in a different way. Yeah, that's very interesting to see. Um, I was like very curious to see that. And you know, I think both of them are like, they're both kind of entrepreneurs, right? If the father runs yeah. a plum orchard and then you said the son is a real estate agent, they're both entrepreneurs technically. So it's very interesting yeah. to see you know, how they view each other and their own careers. Yeah, it's, they're not that different. You know, a farmer who has been farming the land for decades and a son who is like a big shot in the city, like you realize they might be decked out in different clothes and have like different living lifestyles, but they're not that different. I honestly agree with what you said. And I think choosing that father and son duo, Kelly, is actually like really smart because going back on what you said, the generational divide, 
father and son, like parents, there's so much more like connectivity and just a like, closer bond. And I think that's a really, really smart route that you took. I really like that. Yeah. So let's go behind the scenes. For me, a lot of times, we tend to focus on success rather than the mistakes or failures that we endured on our journeys. So Kelly, what's one mistake that you made during the Plum Town filmmaking journey so far? And what did you learn from that? Yeah, I have, I'm gonna select one because I made a lot of mistakes during this journey that aren't necessarily <laughs> tangible. I would say there's a way I approached an actor a well-known actor that I, knowing what I know now, would not have done it that way. We approached him way too soon because we hoped having him would help us with our Kickstarter. So we went out to him without any cinematographer, big people backing us. We did not have any of the support we had now. This was like pre-Kickstarter launch, so no one knew about the project. We probably came off as just like amateur film guys, school students. And we were really tenacious and maybe a little too tenacious. And that's something I would definitely do differently. And I regret it because I feel like if we had waited and gone about it a different way, we have the resources and the connections now where we could have gone about it in a professional way. But it's a learning experience. You live and you learn. Yeah, I really like that. And I'm just really happy that you guys have a good end product right now. And yeah, even though the journey may have been a little rocky, if mm -hmm. you know that's what you think, I think it's definitely like coming for the better and I'm very Thank excited you. for it. And you know, that's the filmmaking process. My high school teacher always said like, if it doesn't give you headaches, is it really filmmaking? You know, you laugh about like that one stupid thing you did during the process. It's something to laugh on about. Like, yeah, you're not gonna go like laugh your friends. Like, remember when we did that entire project perfectly? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. Like, what is that? It's kind of weird. So. Kelly, has your mental image of the film had to be modified due to budget or other constraints? And how did that feel to you? Yeah, I'd say like yes and no. I try not to like put an expectation. Like early on we had expectation like we're working with a pretty low budget. We're gonna have to raise, we weren't even sure we could raise everything on Kickstarter. So even writing the script, like I tried to be as aware of that as possible. So always knowing that like, oh, we can't actually build a village house. So my producer was like, please write everything indoors. <laughs> I was like, okay. Even with like, there's a car scene and you know, you need, cause it's supposed to take place in China. We need to get Chinese license plates and those cost a lot. So it's like, even like small details like that. So, you know, writing it, my producer's like, could you maybe write around the car? Like if you're gonna have a car, like write the scene where you don't ever see them in like a wide shot. Um, so stuff like that, it's like you kind of just, shift around but now that we have we met our kickstarter goal we have some opportunity for additional financing which is really exciting now we kind of get to like play a little bit it's like where do we put the money now you know do we we could get a better location we could put more detail into the build into the house so i think it's important like from the beginning i never tied myself down to like an unrealistic expectation because then i feel like that just sets you up for disappointment so you keep expectations low and then you like get to build upon that and that's fun i think it's really nice that you put yourself like not on like you don't put your film on a pedestal i mean like yeah, yeah like your film is like very important but like it's good to know that you know in the context that you're in with like covid it's nice to like set yourself in a place where you know you're okay with like making mistakes you're okay with you know yeah. changing it up a little you're very flexible with the movie which is very important and 
it's definitely gonna help. And I noticed on Kickstarter, you were trying to raise 18K, but you got to like 20 or 21. Yeah. We're That's crazy. We're really, so we needed actually, we we're going back on this back and forth. We do need more than 18K, but Kickstarter is all or nothing. Meaning if you don't meet your goal, you don't get anything. So we got a little nervous. So that's why we set it at 18. So we actually like, we needed to go over. So we're, we're very lucky and very, very grateful for everyone who's contributed and brought us over. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of money, but in like filmmaking, like the money goes so fast. <laughs> So uh, we're, we're trying to be very conscious of our budget and what we're actually doing with the money. Wait, Kelly, so you're saying that if you didn't raise 18K, Kickstarter would have taken all of the money? Kind of. So when you donate, Kickstarter doesn't charge you. Okay. So it's like if you buy 30 days, you don't meet the goal, the 18K goal, no one gets charged. So you don't get the money. And so like, I think our campaign officially ends Sunday. So when it does end, now everyone's credit cards get charged. It's a blessing in that it gives a sense of urgency because um, people are more likely to donate when they know their money is actually gonna help. You know, like, oh, she needs like this much more to reach her goal, everyone, let's donate. Whereas if it's like a site, because there are fundraising sites where it's like, oh, like you get every dollar you get is just like what you get to keep. People are less kind of like motivated to give their money to actually like band together. I mean, with Kickstarter, the beauty of it is like when we hit our goal, your backers can just like comment on your updates because we send out updates. And some stranger who I don't know kind of posted for everyone to see. He was like, everyone, we did it. Like we all did it. And like that felt so good because I didn't know, like we obsessively on our end check our Kickstarter every day or like every hour. But strangers were like, oh, we're on the site like every day refreshing to see like how much more money you're getting. So it becomes like a community, like people actually think they're a part of it, which is amazing. And, and just hearing that like, guys, we did it. Like that we was like the most rewarding thing out of this entire process. Cause then you realize you're not doing this alone. Like people feel like they're involved. People want to be involved. And that's like the best feeling in the world. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. And as the director of Plum Town, that must feel like really good. Knowing that like so many people like actually cherish the Plum Town film. And I'm really very like excited for hometown like i'm actually really like excited because um i know it's gonna be I great hope. and i know you guys are gonna do an so. amazing job and plum town the short film obviously touches on a lot of important topics kelly in your opinion what's the importance of shedding light on topics such as urbanization displaced communities and connection yeah i think film? it's important because it's it's so relevant to to so many people i'll start with urbanization and displaced communities i mean it's happening to people all over the world soon after i left china i, I was doing research and there's just articles everywhere it's it's villagers in china kind of having their land taken away from them and the inspiration for the the bigger film actually came from an article where there is a village that decided to fight against the people coming to build a factory. In the span of like a few days, I think they barricaded their entire village and set up like booby traps and like literally fought against the land developers. And then I found out like in Italy, there's generations of family lemon farmers who are kind of being displaced by tourism and like bigger manufacturers. In Fiji, small island communities are having their reefs and their coasts dug up by Chinese casino land developers. 
So it's, it's happening all over the world. It's a blessing to be able to tell the story of the underdog because that's something I've always wanted to do. And then with like connection, it's relevant to all of us first generation kids. Um, I think it's important to start that conversation, to realize that it's important to understand your roots and your heritage and the places you come from. So yeah, I think it's, it's relevant. Yeah, I really like how Plumtown's doing a good job on not only just like making it fun, obviously with the karaoke <laughs> and the water gun battle sequence, but also like incorporating these like really important elements because I know a lot of times we kind of, I guess we have the privilege of not really mm -hmm. knowing what's going on around the world, obviously living in the US. And the only way for people to really know about this stuff is through like projects yeah. like this, through films like this. And I think it's really important Thank today. Thank you, really like that means a lot. Doing. It means so much. Back to what Nandana said about, you know, the karaoke and water gun fights. Very important topics, you know, that are usually read in like five minute articles presented in such a fun <laughs> way, you know. Some people, they like look at like the U New York Times article and they're like, oh my God, I have to read. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but when it's like yeah. a 15 minute short film, it's completely different. So I think it's very interesting to see how you're presenting topics in one, a digestible way that it's not just for adults or people that are like older. It's also for like, our generation you know teenagers that can actually mm -hmm. watch it instead of reading like seven minute articles so that's very yeah. important thank you yeah i think it's important to not only you don't want to come off as being preachy or didactic mm -hmm. or being like this short film is going to educate you films at the end of the day are they're entertainment you know so i think it's important to have fun and be entertained and hopefully that that's what people who eventually watch the film will, will feel yeah, so back to Plumtown and having that kind of message. When someone watches Plumtown, what do you want them to take away from it? Is there some main message you want your film to spread? Yeah, I think, you know, like everything we've just talked about with like displaced communities, intergenerational disconnect, I think that's all like the answer with. Call your mom, call your dad, call your grandparents. I think that's what I loved about The Farewell. The reception from the film was like, this made me want to call my grandma. So I think that's like, that's it. Like if you watch this film and that makes you want to do that, then goal achieved. That's all we wanted to do. And just to, you know, start a, start a conversation is really, is really the message. I love those films. You know, the behind it is you want to start a conversation or it's kind of like give a crap movies. Yeah, I think those are the best kind of movies, in my opinion. I'm a big fan of slash and rom-coms, but when it makes you really, like, <laughs> look back on life and reflect messages such as urbanization, displaced communities, and connection to your own life, that's yeah. especially really important because it's a human movie. It's not about, you know, intergalactic robots. It's about, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's very down-to-earth, which is mm -hmm. some of the best movies you can produce. Yeah, hopefully. It's a lot to live up to. Yeah, and honestly, the themes that you're presenting, like I've said, is really, really good. And even today, just like living in the U.S., like the rest of my family is like all the way on the other side of the world, like India. And, like sometimes I like to give myself an excuse of like, oh, like I'm doing this. So like I just like won't call them or like I won't talk to them because yeah. like we can keep ourselves busy like that. But like, you know, I'm just excusing it. And honestly, like with everything going on, I've come to the realization that like, what if one day like these yeah. people like just go, right? And my last regret is gonna be not talking to them. And I've definitely 
gotten that like reality check and yeah it's because of films like these that i've been like watching that have been giving me that like reminder like hey yeah. like don't take people for granted right because like you don't know how Thank long you're you gonna for last sharing. and I, I really like that. yeah i don't know if i said this but plum town the film and the short film especially is that same reason it's i call it like subdued guilt or like inner guilt but i'm the same way my grandpa the one who this is based on who lives in like the countryside and has like no means of technology all he has is a small flip phone that my dad made him buy and that's the only means of communication it, it's skype and growing up you know he spoke a different dialect he was old i just never every time my dad would be like come talk to your grandpa i'd be like i'm doing homework i'm doing this i would go i would say we'd be like hi grandpa how are you i'm good i hope you're healthy and i'd dash and even when I visited him for the first time, I think in like sixth grade, I was miserable. I hated living in the countryside. It was like hot and dirty. And I wanted to get out of there. Yes. I went to my other grandpa who has a nice life in a condo in the city. That's where I wanted to be. And I didn't know that he was so sad seeing how much I wanted to leave. And my grandma passed away, I think a month after I visited. And I realized it's what exactly what you said, taking it for granted. My dad said, you know, if he hadn't forced me to go back and live, bum it out in the countryside, I would have never seen my grandma again. And so this short, what I'm doing now is like, it's me trying to make amends for all the times I didn't want to talk to my grandpa and I didn't want to actually get to know him. Like this is the relationship I wish I had. And then this is more about the feature because the feature is about a granddaughter forming a relationship with her grandfather. But it's making amends for the relationship we never had that I never sought out. I hope just my grandpa knowing that I'm doing this is enough. I know it'll never be, but he's excited. And, and he said something too. He said with a feature, he's like, I'm so glad you're making a story about our family, but I, I just know I'm not going to be around to see it. And it, it, he didn't say it in like, oh, like, I'm so sad. Like, it's true. Like he's in his 90s. And realistically with like the speed of like, the career I want, the trajectory. It's like films don't get made overnight. I have no control over who wants to finance a feature film, but what I do have control over is a short film that I can crowdfund, that I can do on my time, that I can control. And hopefully this is something I can show him, even if he never gets to see the feature. We'd love to hear some funny anecdotes from the pre-production stage of Plum Town. Do you have any in mind, Kelly? Yeah, I feel like there's more to come as we like actually dive deeper into it. But off the top of my head, we were doing the budget sheet and that's when you have to like list out anything we think we'll need to pay for. And one of them is music licensing because on the karaoke machine, our character performs a rap. And the one I wrote in was Dat Stick by Rich Brian. Like, I feel like it's like a niche thing. He's like an Indonesian rapper. But uh, my producer Thomas, I guess, didn't know who that is. So I log into the budget sheet and I, I see he's budgeted for, he wrote, need to get the rights for Brian, comma, Rich. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. Cause I just thought everyone knew who Rich Brian was. But yeah, that was like a little funny thing we laughed about. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Obviously Plumtown, we've been talking for a very long time about Plumtown, <laughs> how it relates to you, basically, what it means to the audience, the themes you want to put in. So what is the meaning behind the title, like the actual title, Plum Town? And how is Plum Town symbolic or even representative of you? 
Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this because I don't get to do this. I feel like a lot of people are curious where Plum Town comes from. So in the feature film, it is a semi-autobiographical kind of story of me as a person because in high school I I was a photographer, that's what I did. And there is a series of photographs called Pie Town that I came across in a museum. And it was a photographer named Russell Lee who was sent by FDR after the Great Depression to kind of travel across America and visit rural communities and document how they're kind of doing or dealing with the aftermath of the Great Depression. So he found himself in a small town in New Mexico called Pie Town. And he just took these like very intimate photos of the farmers. It's just so intimate, but so like fly on the wall. And so the feature film Plum Town is about a photographer who kind of photographs the farmers of the village. And plums kind of came from my relationship with my grandfather kind of walking around his village and him kind of showing me everything that's changed as a result of urbanization. But he brought me to some wild plum trees off the side of the road and we picked plums. That was kind of like the day we really bonded. And he also pointed at them and he was like, the plum trees in his village were planted there by his grandfather. And it's the only thing he still recognizes from the past. So Pie Town is like photography, but like Plum Town kind of comes from that. And that's the reason it's called Plum Town, not Plum Village. Because I've had people been like, uh, technically shouldn't it be Plum Village? Because it's like a farming village, but it's a play on the photo series, Pie Town, which is an Easter egg. Yeah. Not a lot of people, like no one knows that. It's very niche. Wow, I'm, I'm really glad you got to go in depth to it. That's very cool. I had no idea that was based off a series of photos. And finally, Kelly, our last question for the day. What advice would you give to young women of color filmmakers who are curious in the world of filmmaking and are inspired by your new short film? I, I'll keep it brief. I think just go out and do it, you know? If no one's gonna give you opportunities, make your own opportunities, but also don't feel like you have to do it on your own. Cause this entire Kickstarter process, it just made me just realize I could not have done this by myself. And there's so many people out there that want to help. You just have to accept it. So yeah, you're, you're never on your own and do it and you know, do it with the people that love and support you. Yeah, that's, uh, that's literally such a cute message. The entire concept of Plum Town, everything about it, sounds so intriguing and I can't wait to see this beautiful final product that you're going to be putting out and I'm sure our listeners could probably agree to. So Kelly, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for sitting down and talking to us for almost two hours about <laughs> your experiences as a filmmaker, your thoughts on minority representation, and most importantly, your short film, Plum Town. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And I don't even know we were talking for two hours because it just flew by because this was so fun. Likewise, honestly, this is one of the best conversations I've had in my life and my oh. very like teenager life. Oh my gosh. I cannot wait to watch Plum Town once it comes out. So Kelly, where can our listeners find you on social media? Yeah, so I'm at it's Kelly U on Instagram and Twitter, and you can follow along the Plumtown journey on our Instagram at Plumtown Film. You heard it, guys. Make sure to follow Kelly and Plumtown's social medias to stay updated on her latest works. 
You can also follow our Instagram at Illuminating Diversity for the latest news on our podcast, behind the scenes content, and more information about the topics we cover. You can also join our team or be featured on our podcast by visiting the link in our Instagram bio. And thank you so, so, so much, listeners, for tuning into Illuminating Diversity, a podcast for women of color by women of color with your hosts, Kayla and myself. Thank you again, Kelly, for joining us. I, for one, cannot wait to see what more films you'll make in the future. Oh, thank you guys so much. This is so fun. And, and thank you for, you know, all you guys do to uplift diverse voices. You guys are amazing. And you're going to continue to do so many wonderful things. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and that's a wrap, you guys. See you all in another two weeks.